All right, everybody doing okay? Good, glad to hear it. Glad everybody's doing fine. If you don't mind, turn in your Bibles tonight to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. And we will get started. It's good to see everybody. I tell you what, it's like winter hit us just straight in the face. This is as cold as I ever want it to be today. And so uh, some of you that may have moved in from another place, this is awful. <laughs> and so we are not happy about it, and this is not the time of the year for it. Um, and so it's supposed to be the kind of weather in South Carolina where you have to dress with a full jacket on and a toboggan, stocking cap, however you want to call it. All that in the morning, and by afternoon, you got on shorts and a T-shirt. Y'all know what I'm saying? This is the time of the year that we're used to that. And uh, so having to wear a full coat in the afternoon in October is terrible. But we just deal with it because we're not in charge of the weather. Ain't that right? And the Lord knows what's best. You know what I'm saying? It's just like when you go through the drive through at Chick-fil-A. Whatever they give you is what you're supposed to have. You don't check it. <laughs> Don't, don't even check the bag. It's right. It's right. And so that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. And so this is exactly the way it's supposed to be. And we're thankful to the Lord that we are alive and together tonight on Wednesday night. So it is good to be here together. And if you'll turn with me to Exodus 11, we're going to begin tonight by looking at this last plague, the one that you know so well of the Passover. Um, and so we're going to look at that together uh, this evening. Um, by way, I'm just thankful for so much going on in the life of our church, a lot of stuff happening, especially, man, we're talking, we are midway through October, which you know what that means. Christmas is in two weeks. That's what that means. Before you know it, it is here. And so a lot of that stuff you'll start hearing about as we start looking, looking toward Christmas which comes to us in two weeks. And so um, really, really just looking forward to a lot of things. Tonight I want to get to this passage. This passage is so rich, it's going to be my desire to try to get through 11 and 12 and deal with the entire section here, if we can, uh, by God's grace. So with that in mind, let's get started. And I'll go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us in the privilege of being able to join together. May we always be uh, ones that do not take these opportunities for granted, but thank you for them. And so, God, as we gather together tonight, help us to look to your word and to learn from it, to be encouraged by it, and to cling to the truths upon which it gives us. Father, even as we look to Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord, our substitute, our sacrifice uh, on, on our behalf for our sins, Father. So, we're thankful for Jesus, and may this passage make us more thankful for him. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember one preacher told me he had a, a quote in the front of his Bible that was copying another preacher, but it simply said, you know, Lord, today don't make me a better scholar, make me a better believer. And I believe that I love that quote. The idea is for us not just to learn things so as to learn them to achieve some sort of document to hang on a wall. Our desire as we learn things is to be better believers and trust the Lord more. And I'm not sure when we come in Old Testament, I, I say a lot just kind of as a joke. I don't, I don't like the joke, but I do it every once in a while about how this is my favorite passage. I can use that about every one of them. That's kind of the joke, you know. And here we come tonight to this incredible passage in Exodus chapter 11 and 12, this last plague. I have, uh, there's new people here always, and so I try not to use the same illustrations, but there's a few I use. Uh, I, I got a gift and they may be here that gave it to me, but I don't know, so I won't say their name. I got a gift this week uh, from someone that's a 2023 calendar that you hang on the wall. I didn't know they still make those. You know what I'm saying? I thought that was obsolete. But they, had, they, gave, us, they gave me a calendar that you hang on the wall, and it's of paintings by one Bob Ross. Now, if anybody knows, Bob Ross is one of my favorite painters in the world. He always had time for me on PBS 
Um, back when we only had four channels, uh, somehow when the news was on, Bob Ross was on. You know what I'm saying? And so for a young kid, I could flip it over and watch him paint a picture. And it mesmerized me because I promise you, I think he messed up about 10 or 15 times every time. And somehow he always fixed it and made it seem like it was right. But the reason why I say that is because as I grew up, and you've heard me say this, and I'm going to say it again tonight, but as I grew up, I'm watching him paint, and I'm mesmerized by the fact that each line has something to do with the great big picture. And if you look at it, sometimes I think he's messing up, but when he puts it all together, it makes this beautiful picture. I could never bring that together. I'm not artistic in any way, so I'm fascinated by this. When we read the Old Testament, every single story is like a brushstroke on a painting just like Bob Ross. Every single story is a brushstroke on a painting, and that brushstroke is painting a picture for us to see of Jesus Christ. All of it is pointing us to him. Jesus said, everything written in the law and the prophets and the writings is about me. So all of this is pointing us to Christ. And sometimes those brushstrokes may be just a little leaf on a tree, if you know what I mean, that's adding into the big picture. And sometimes it's the whole trunk or the grand river. And this one tonight is a grand river painting stroke in this picture that is Christ as we look to what we see. And I'll try to explain what I mean by that. Moses has been dealing with Pharaoh. And, and as we go along, there's this interesting piece here as Moses is talking to Pharaoh, almost like negotiations. Hey, let my people go. No. All right. Well, this is what's going to happen. Boom. It happens, right? And the Lord, through his power, on display demonstrates that he's greater than the gods of Pharaoh and sends Pharaoh and Egypt into chaos because they can't trust what they think they can trust. God is greater, stronger, and more powerful. And so these plagues have tearing down the whole belief system of Egypt as God is demonstrating his power. But at each point, it seems like Pharaoh's in charge in some way. Pharaoh may even think that's the case. Because when you come to it, Moses says, hey, let our people go. The Lord said to me to let the people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to do it. And here comes the plague. And at the end of it, Pharaoh kind of begs for his life a little bit, kind of hedges on some things. And then once he gets out of it, he again goes, no, I'm not going to let him go. And he hardens his heart again towards God. And God hardens his heart again by demonstrating his power and only exposing Pharaoh's disbelief again. And so Pharaoh won't let him go. And up until this point, they are still in Egypt. After nine plagues, they are still there. And so when this 10th one comes, God is finally saying in some ways, all right, it's time for me to take control over this. I have given Pharaoh a chance. I have offered him opportunity after opportunity to do what is right. I came to him before I did anything else and said, it's time to let my people go. And he said, no. And when he did, I responded in such a way. And so uh, God has offered these opportunities for Pharaoh to do the right thing. And and at the end of every one, what does it say? Pharaoh says, no. And his heart is hardened, stiffened before God, not wanting to follow, not believing. And so his heart is hardened. So at some point, Pharaoh may have the idea here that he's in control of what's going on. Does that make sense to everybody? And because and, and, what's interesting to me about this is I believe a lot of us sometimes are in Pharaoh's position. Now, maybe we hadn't dealt with the plagues that he has dealt with or the other things, but a lot of times we like to think we're in charge. We like to think we're in control. We like to think that we are the ones managing this and, and we can handle it all on our own. Pharaoh believed that too. And God gave him demonstration after demonstration after demonstration to say, you are not in control. Turn control over to me. Here is your opportunity. And Pharaoh turned away from him every single time. So the Lord says to Moses in chapter 11, after bringing the darkness, and remember what Pharaoh said, the darkness came in there that ninth plague. Darkness came at the end of chapter 10. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart again. He would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. Pharaoh says to Moses, I don't ever want to see you again. 
I don't want to see this. Don't let it happen again. From the day that you see my face, you shall die. Pharaoh finally has fed up, but he's not fed up into thinking it's time for me to let this thing go. He's thinking now he's going to end it. He's going to have the final word. He's going to have the final say, and he can do what he wants to. And if Moses, you step in front of me, he can kill God's man. That's no problem for him. So Pharaoh believes up until this bitter end that he's in control. And so God says to Moses, Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more. Yet one plague more. I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. When we read the text, by the way, we find out that none of this that Pharaoh is doing has caught God by surprise. The Lord said to Moses way before he even sent him to Egypt, Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. He is going to reject you. He's going to turn away from you. Here's what's going to happen. And every step of the way, the text shows us, the story, the narrative shows us, demonstrates to us that God knows exactly what is going to happen. And we see that in demonstration. So over and over again, and now God says to Moses, it's time for you to go. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask. Every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. God is preparing his people to get out. And so have the silver and gold, get those things together, prepare yourself to leave. Moreover, by the way, he sees how it says the, uh, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. God is even turning the Egyptians to start giving these things to the Israelites. Now, again, that's not surprising. If you remember back to the patriarchs, like when Jacob was in there, and y'all remember, remember Jacob and how he was a shepherd, and how he, y'all remember way back, like last year, when we talked about the fact that he uh, made sticks and put it in front of the sheep, and he had some mottled sheep. Y'all remember I made the joke about Waffle House, they were scattered, smothered, and covered kind of sheep. Y'all remember that? I thought that was a pretty funny joke, so much so that I remember it even now. And, and so we, uh, Jacob does it, and God increases the flocks and increases the flocks. And so every time Abraham went away and came back, every time, every time Isaac went away and came back, every time Joseph went away and came back, God blesses them and increases what they own and what they have. And so God's blessing comes upon them. So they see all of their flocks. They see all of their, their animals, their, their workers, everybody with them. They see that as God's blessing to them. God has gifted them and blessed them. So here you see it again. God is blessing his people. And he's doing that by changing the hearts of the Egyptians toward them in such a way so that they give them what they need. And so God says, it's time for us to get ready to go. And mo moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. God gave favor to them. So Moses says, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I'll go into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who was behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. God is warning here of this final plague. And the final plague is going to be a devastating one. One, as Pharaoh said to Moses, I'm going to kill you if I see you again. And God says, watch and see what's going to happen. Death surely is coming. And now you can obviously see at this point, there's a couple ways we can look at this. Because I think what God is doing is pointing us to something greater. But here, ultimately, what we see is that, that Pharaoh had his opportunity Pharaoh believes he's still in charge. Pharaoh thinks he's the one who holds life in his hand and can kill Moses when he wishes. And God says, no, not only do I hold the Nile in my hand, not only do I keep the livestock alive, not only does the sun shine when I say it shines, also life and death is in my hand. 
And what's true here is that death is coming. And even as it's coming, it's coming to them all. And the fact that their firstborn is now on the line is a testimony to what God is going to do in redeeming his people. In redeeming his people. So he says, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But, verse 7, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. I love how he puts that, you know. Not a dog shall even growl of any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God recognizes his people. God knows his people. And God, in many ways throughout the Old Testament, quite oftentimes will discipline his people. We'll see that throughout. But he never divorces them, and he never leaves his promises with them. He always keeps them. He always does what he says. And there are his people, and he is their God. And really, that is the theme throughout the Old Testament in this way. These are my people. I am their God. There is a relationship between God and his people that is distinct from God and all other peoples. In fact, this doesn't change in the New Testament, by the way. I mean, in the New Testament, you see the author of Hebrews says things like, God disciplines those he loves. If he does not discipline you, then there is a distinction between you and his children, right? So he disciplines the ones who are his in particular, so as to prepare them through holiness to see him. And so ultimately, we see this distinction is made, and it's made even here, that God is going to bring death into Egypt, and it's going to affect every home, but not even a dog is going to growl against the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot Anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Again, one of the key things I've been saying throughout looking at the Old Testament is that this book, the Bible, is a story with the main character of God himself. God is the main character here. And so God is saying, look, Egypt is going to try. They're going to run their game I know everything he's thinking. I know everything he will do. I know every step that he will take. And remember, remember a few weeks ago, I had a pretty good line. I thought it was a pretty good line um, where I said, I'm just, I'm just saying, it's fine. But sometimes you, you, you say it's a pretty good line where I said, we need to take, we oftentimes take scripture like Tylenol when we're hurting. Y'all remember that? Then we, when we really need to take it like vitamins for our daily strength. And so we, we oftentimes in the midst of our pain look to scripture and we think it's like a Tylenol that we can just pop in. And sometimes the Lord gives us those passages we need at just the right moment. You've been there, I'm sure. But also we need to recognize that look at what it's saying here. Just like it says in the New Testament, no distinctions being made when it says that the Lord makes the, his enemies his footstool, right? He takes his enemies and he turns it to where his enemies will even serve him. They'll even be his footstool. And so here in Egypt, you see that exact thing happening. The Lord is saying, I know their every move. I know every step. So for us, the vitamin we take here is the fact that God loves us as his people. If we claim Christ as Savior, we are welcomed and adopted into his family, the scripture says. So we are his children. He is our God, and he loves us as his people. And even the enemies that may come against us, even those who may try to stop us or hurt us or harm us, have no power over him. In fact, the scripture says, here's how the devil himself is conquered. By the blood of the lamb, the word of the testimony, and because God's people aren't afraid to die. Isn't that incredible? And Jesus says that don't fear the one who can even take your life. What is that? I'm giving you eternal life. What you have right here is momentary, so don't be even afraid of the one who can take your life. Worry about the one who can send your soul to hell. That's the one you should worry about. 
So here we come as this, as believers, and we go, I'm not even worried. Like he's saying this, I know what they're thinking. I know what they're going to do. I know what they're going to say. I've got all of this under control. This is a big, huge vitamin pill for Moses in the midst of it saying, you do not have to worry about tomorrow. And that's exactly why when we read that in the New Testament, all we got to do is look back in these Old Testament stories and say, yeah, that's that's the way he's been from the beginning because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And while he's always taking care of his people, why should I ever doubt that he would take care of me? So when I say don't worry about tomorrow, I'm reckoning back here with Moses who God said, I know exactly what Pharaoh's going to do. Don't you worry about it. I've got this, Moses. And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove it to you. And so God said, this is exactly what's going to happen. Pharaoh's not going to listen, but my wonders, out of his disbelief, my wonders will be amplified. Out of his disbelief, I will show my glory. My glory, that's what he's saying. He's going to serve me by disbelieving in me and trying to act against me. And I'm going to show my glory. I'm going to turn my enemy into my footstool. Whatever he brings up is going to serve me, Moses and Aaron, Verse 10, did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. When it says he hardened his heart again here, we've seen that over and we've talked about it just about it every time. Reminder that God is demonstrating and showing his his power, his might and all that he is and instead of trusting him, Pharaoh continues to turn away from him. God shows his wonders, God shows his powers. And so this hardening that starts as like just a bent away, then a stiffening, and now it gets to the strongest of those words. His heart was stone toward God. It was stone. Every wonder, instead of turning Moses to repentance, turn Mo, I mean, instead of turning Pharaoh, that's a different Bible, that's not even a Bible. Every warning, instead of turning Pharaoh to repentance, turned him to hardening away from God thinking he was greater, stronger, and mightier. And God said, it's time now to let the people go. God takes over. He let Pharaoh for a moment give him the idea that he's in control, and now he's going to demonstrate he's not. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, remind you there, in the land of Egypt, they're still in the land of Egypt. They're still there. So he says to them in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to the father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, You may take it from the sheep or the goat, or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat of eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all of the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. He goes on to say, this day will be a memorial day for you. In the land of Egypt, still sojourners, still in bondage of slavery technically, the Lord is going to give Israel their first glimpse of worship and liturgy, if you will. Here is what you are to do. And, and, and in God's way, what he always does, he doesn't leave them guessing. He's gracious to them. He doesn't say, hey, 
on that night that I'm coming, you need to do a meal. Cook, cook something up, maybe a goat or a lamb. Cook something up and just get it ready. You got to have a meal. Throw some blood somewhere. That's not what he says at all. He gives them specific instructions. Here is what I expect from my people. But notice here that while God says that not even a dog's going to growl against his people, God makes it very clear that if your house does not have the blood on the doorpost, if your house does not have this, and if you have not gone through this process, then that death angel that's coming will visit you as well. The only thing that can guarantee that that death angel passes over, which becomes the title of this, the only thing that can guarantee that is the shed blood of that unblemished, spotless lamb that is on your doorpost. And the faith by which, while you're still in Egypt, you act in faith to eat this and to do what I say. Get ready to go. The Lord gives specific instructions. In fact, he tells them what clothes to leave on. He tells them where to put the staff. He tells them to eat quickly. And he says, if you can't eat it all, that's fine. Burn it before the sun comes up. Burn it at daylight. This is what you are to do. The, the, the instructions are specific and they are clear. And God says, here is what's required of you, right? Here's what's required. So get the picture. While they're still in bondage, while they're still in the land of Egypt, he hadn't brought them home yet, but while they're still in the land of Egypt, he teaches his people how to worship him, what their liturgy is, and what's expected of them. And he wants them to do what? Act in faith. Act in faith. They're still in Egypt. They hadn't been delivered yet. Wouldn't it be easier to do this on the other side? Surely it would for us, right? Surely we would say, okay, everything's up in the air. The last time we tried to get up out of here, Pharaoh flipped the script on us and it wouldn't give us any straw to make bricks and it became real hard. That wouldn't go too well. So now what's going to happen? We've seen all these plagues. We know it, but, but maybe it would be better, God, if you went ahead and delivered us, let us get into the wilderness or let us get to the promised land and then we can settle in and worship. Well, wouldn't that be nice for all of us, right? But that's not what God does. God doesn't finish the task here for them and say, now worship me. God says, trust me, my faith. If you do these things, if you do these things by obedience and faith, still while you're in Egypt, how much more is he going to bless you when you get into his land? He's going to bless you there. Here's what's expected of my people. And so he tells them all of these things to do. This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened for the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Notice how these things go together. I, I love the imagery here. I don't know much about leaven in a bread. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Here's what I know. That my grandma was doing it one time making homemade bread and I ran through the house and she came after me with a switch. Because if you run while the bread hadn't risen yet, then the bread might collapse. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And she told us not to run. All I know is I don't want to deal with that. I don't want it. But what I also know is she had prepared this for some time. She had let this sit up for some time so it can work its magic, whatever it does. And it had taken a while for her to get to this. And the masterpiece was almost finished. And the last thing she wanted was the little knucklehead grandkid. My grandma loved me, loved Jesus. The radio was on 24-7, right to WMHK playing Jesus music. You know, that was, she, she was good. But she would take a switch. And the last thing she wanted was you running through the house messing up that bread because it's taken a while to get this masterpiece together. But not here. Notice the urgency of the moment in this. We're not going to wait on the leaven to make the bread rise. We're going to go ahead and get it ready without that. We don't have time for that. In fact, listen to how this urgency ties in. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened. That's not the way you eat supper. Supper is when you put on your comfy clothes. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And you come and sit down and maybe one night you just treat yourself and sit down at the couch. 
and watch TV while you eat supper and that act, you know it's not very spiritual to do that, but you still do it because, hey, I'm going to treat yourself. And that's how you handle supper, but not here. You got your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you eat it in haste. You don't even have time to wait for the bread to rise because when God calls you to go, it's time to go and you must be ready. A lot of beautiful imagery in that. Because God is about to call his people out. And what he's saying is, y'all go ahead and eat this meal and be ready to go at the moment I call you. Isn't that a good picture of what we're waiting on now, right? In fact, that's exactly what the New Testament says to us, that we're sojourners and pilgrims in this land. We are still in Egypt, if you will. While God has saved us and redeemed us and we got his promises and we're just as secure right now, if you are in Christ, you are just as secure as the angels in heaven are secure, as those who've gone before us because Christ Jesus has guaranteed our safe arrival home. We are just as secure as they are here, but we're still in Egypt in some way. And we're still living in this land as sojourners. And so our spiritual bags are always packed and our food is always ready. And we eat with haste in the sense because as soon as Jesus calls, I'm ready to go. Do y'all know what I'm saying? I feel like I need to sing a Southern gospel song right now. Some come up with a Southern gospel song or something. As soon as he calls, I'm ready. That's the imagery here. You don't have time to wait for the bread. You don't have time to worry about this. When he calls you, it's time to go. Eat in haste. Be ready. As a statement of trusting that this world and this meal is not going to be our last meal, we're looking for the meal in heaven that has been prepared for us by Christ himself. On the first day, it says you hold an assembly. Again, laying out this worship plan. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly, no work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat that alone may be prepared by you, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generation as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month to evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all the dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. What the Lord is saying here is he's giving Israel their liturgy of worship. Before they got the synagogue and the temple that they'll come to in a little bit, before they have that tent that's walking, he's telling them, here's how you worship me. And this is going to be a reminder. For years to come, you are going to celebrate what's about to happen. You're going to celebrate what's getting ready to happen. That's what you're getting ready for. And so he gives them the plan. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when the, your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the, of the Lord's Passover, for he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord gives them what he expects them to do. A liturgy of worship in the land of Egypt. And they are to celebrate this and be reminded of what God is about to do. It takes some faith, right? I mean, obviously, look at the next line, the next verse. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. What an important verse. All of those things that were told, the people of Israel went and did it. God has said, 
if you don't do this, death is coming to your home. Death is coming to your house. Your firstborn will die. If you don't do this, death is coming. God did not take the curse away from them. He gave them a way out of the curse. He did not just simply say, hey, don't worry about y'all. I got y'all dealt with. He said, I am giving you a method, a way. Here's what you are to do so that the angel does not come. He didn't just take them out of it and say, it's not happening. He said, it's happening, and it's happening to all of you unless you do these things, unless you trust in this. Now, that takes faith. And I love what it says. Then the people of Israel went and did so. The Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now, just think about that for a second. All the people of Israel that had become a great nation heard the words of Moses and Aaron. Up until this point, and even as it said here, like the Egyptians didn't get mad at the Israelites. God made sure that they didn't just start killing the Israelites, right? God said he had favor on them. Even they started giving some gold and silver, blessing them. So he had already taken care of that. And so, so he, he, he had made sure of that. But at the same time, at the same time, these other plagues had come and, and it didn't happen to the Israelites. It even tells us that darkness didn't settle on Goshen and the flies didn't go down there to where the Israelites were. God took care of his people and separated them out. But not this one. This one is important. This one's coming in particular on everybody, to every house, to every place. And God says, here's what you have to do. You have to do these things. So up until this point, there's been nothing for them. God is just, but now, now these rules are laid in front of them as here's how your night is going to go. If you want to be safe, here's what you do. And can you imagine, I, I, I heard this illustration from D.A. Carson, great New Testament scholar in the, with the scriptures, and, and, and I love what he does here. And it, he says, can you imagine the two different fathers in Israel? The, the, the Israelites there, the Hebrews are in Egypt, and you have the two different fathers there. And one of them hears, the, the, they both at the same time hear, the death angel's coming, the death angel's coming. He's coming for our house? Yes, he's coming for your house. Here's what you do. And one of them says, thank you, Moses. I love my firstborn son. He's my, he's my pride and joy and my treasure. I love him. And so thank you. I know what to do now. And he comes home joyous. He said, hey, listen, the death angel's coming, but don't y'all worry. We have a plan that God has given us. And he goes out with the kids, happy, celebrating God, having given them this plan. And he picks out the nicest of lambs, whether a goat or a sheep. And he's like, I like sheep better than goats. Let's don't use them. And so he gets the sheep and his spotless and is perfect and they're like look how perfect this thing is and he goes and he shows his sons how to take the sheep's life how to prepare it he goes inside he's got strapped on a staff between his feet they're eating and celebrating the fact that God has delivered him. He even lets his kids help maybe putting blood on the doorpost and on the top. And as he's getting ready, he's sitting there ready to go. He's got the rest of it. In fact, him and his boys were so hungry that night, they ate every bit, didn't even have to burn anything but the bones. And he's celebrating, thanking God for his deliverance. And he puts his son to lay him down even as he's sleepy that night. And he puts him to rest and he says, praise God. Praise God, he's freed me. His faith is on display. And when that night, that death angel comes, he's sure that he's safe because God has told him he was. But then imagine the other dad, right? He loves his firstborn too. And he's a little bit on the nervous side of life. Y'all ever know anybody's on the nervous side of life? And he hears it, he says, he's coming for us this is wait a minute the, you know when they did the the sun thing that didn't bother us or the flies that didn't come but now this one's coming for us i don't know what to do with this i mean how do we what, i mean seriously what what is it i hope we get the plan write this down honey y'all ever done that write this down because this is a long list of things and we need to get this right because i don't want my son to die tonight so please write this down and so they write it down to do the best they can. I don't know what they're writing on, maybe a rock or something with a stick, you know, back in the day. And they write it down any way they can. They get it in their head and they go and they're questioning, is that one good enough? It's like, it's like some of us going to pick out Christmas trees sometime. You know what I'm talking about? 
Is this one going to work? And they look at it from every side and every angle. Is there any blemish anywhere? I wonder if this one's okay. As they pick out a sheep or a goat, I wonder if this one is fine. And every step along the way, they're questioning what's happening. Is this right? Are we doing this right? Is that enough blood on the doorpost? Is that enough blood on the side? Is that enough stuff everywhere? Is this good? Is my belt fight, is it tight enough right now? Am I ready to go? Is everybody good? Everybody ready to go? We got it. Let's eat. Hey, don't drop any. We got to take any of this and burn it. Y'all see what I'm saying? Because if he doesn't get this right, then the Lord's coming. He's coming for his firstborn and he loves his firstborn. And he's worried to death with every step of the way. As he does all of these steps, he puts the blood up there and he's scared if that's enough. He, he cooks that lamb and he's scared if he didn't cook it right. And he, he takes it out and he burns it and he's hoping it all gets to ashes. And it's enough as he burns it and he comes back in. And instead of just sitting there looking happy and satisfied, he curls up next to his firstborn son and holds him tightly, scared to death that something's coming after him. And D.A. Carson says as he does those which one of those dads lost their son that night? Neither. Neither one of them did. Because why? Whether they did it with great excitement or enthusiasm or they did it with great worry or concern, they still did what God called them to do and acted in faith. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus is saying when he says, all you need is the faith of a mustard seed. In other words, it's this simple. Trust in God to provide and do what he says he would do. That's all he's called us to do. And sometimes we act with great excitement. I can trust the Lord. I got faith. And we see people like that. And we're like, I don't know where to get that from. I'm scared to death about tomorrow. I'm worried about this and I'm worried about that. And so we think in some ways there's some level here. But this night, whether the dad was scared to death or he was excited in the process, this night, both of their sons were saved because they acted in faith to do what God said. To do what God said. Now, we all know, as I said, this passage of Scripture is a huge brushstroke in the painting that God is making that's pointing us to one greater. Because as he gets to the end of the Old Testament and he finishes out his brushstrokes, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And just to make it clear, so as we don't have to guess, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, as he's writing to the Corinthians and talking about this event, Paul reminds the Corinthians of something very important. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul is writing to say, why do we go back trusting the old leaven? Because now the new has come. And the Passover lamb has been provided for us. And the picture, the picture there in Exodus chapter 11 and 12 is pointing us directly to the one who would come and die in our place. Because we're not saved today by any ritual around dinner. We're saved today by Jesus himself going to the cross. God himself putting to death his firstborn son in our place. And he is the perfect lamb that has been sacrificed for us. And the blood that we need does not need to be on the doorposts of our home, but on the hearts of our own lives. And when that happens, death has no say over us anymore. Jesus is enough then. So Paul is saying, 
This brushstroke in Exodus 11 and 12 is painting this glorious picture of Jesus Christ, our great Passover lamb. And we've seen this before because here is the substitute. We've learned from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 that the only way our sins can be dealt with is for blood to be shed. And God there sacrificed those animals to put the skins on Adam and Eve so as to make them appropriate before him and cover their sinfulness so that they can stand in his presence. God did that. And then we saw the sacrifice that was accepted, Abel, the blood sacrifice. And then, and then we saw Abraham sacrificing on this behalf. And we, we, we remember when he took Isaac up to the mountain, right? And how he had to go sacrifice to praise God. And what did God provide when he said to kill your firstborn son? And God said, nope, I'm not doing that. And he provided the ram in the thicket for Isaac in the same way here in Exodus. God has said your firstborn son will be killed. No, but I'm going to give you a way out. And he provides the perfect lamb for them in their sacrifice. So God through Abraham, God through the Passover here in Exodus is demonstrating how he will save his people through the death of his firstborn perfect lamb. And that's how he'll do it. This picture is pointing us straight there. Jesus is that for us. And what I'm telling you is, What I'm telling you is the only way you'll be saved when death comes to you is if the blood of Jesus Christ has covered your life. The perfect lamb of God. That's it. Trust in him by faith. While we're still here in Egypt, he's saying all you got to do is trust in the one who's provided for you. Trust in this one. And we eat We look forward, even as we prepare that that Lord's Supper that we talk about, even as we eat of that, we are recognizing that this is the lamb that was provided. This is the meal that has been made and set for us. This is the table that is ours, that guarantees our seat at the wedding feast of the lamb in heaven. Guarantees it. And what I love in the scriptures that makes it clear and just brings us all the way to the end, is in Revelation, when Jesus demonstrates himself to be the conquering one over all, right? Y'all know how the Bible ends? Jesus wins. That's how it ends. And when he demonstrates that, and the Lord says, you know, that John has that scene in Revelation 5 when the, the scroll was there and the seal was sealed. And that seal, you recognized if somebody didn't open that, death is coming to all of us. And John looked in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth, a demonstration. He looked all over God's creation and there was nobody qualified to open that scroll. And that scroll meant life or death. And there's nobody qualified to open it. And John starts weeping. And one of the elders come up to him and tap him on the shoulder and said, what you crying for? Weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Remember that? Y'all remember that? And then it says what? John looked to the throne. And what did he see? A lion? A lamb standing as was slain. You scoot on over to Revelation 7. And all the nations have been redeemed and brought together there in Revelation 7. And what are they seeing? Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And when we get to Revelation 18 and 19, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, when we get to heaven... There will never be a time when we're not reminded that we are there because the lamb died for us. In fact, it tells us that he's standing at the throne as a lamb who has been slaughtered. Standing there victorious. So for all of eternity, we will be gazing and looking upon Christ. And what will we see when we see that? We will see our sacrifice. John Owen, the older Puritan, was writing on the surety of heaven. And he said, just know this, that if we are in heaven, we are only there because the lamb has been sacrificed on our behalf. 
And just imagine this. If for one moment, if for one second, that lamb, Jesus himself, has to step outside of heaven, y'all know what needs to happen at that point? All of us have to leave with him. If he has to step out just for a second, we have to leave too because we are only in the glorious presence of God because the lamb has paid for us. It's the only reason we're there. And here, the Lord sets up this remembrance for the people of Israel so as they will not forget God's salvation for them in the land of Egypt and how he provided for them safety from death. And how he has brought them out himself. And all of this points, as Paul says, to Jesus, who is the great provision for us. In John chapter 6, Jesus says this again. And he makes some people feel real queasy about it. He had just fed the 5,000. And remember, he had kind of made his way to the other side. And they, you know, overnight... And then all of those people came for him because they had supper, you know, with the five loaves and two fishes. And they had supper, and now they're coming over, and it's time for breakfast. So they're like, we're here again. You know, that worked the first time. Here we are. And Jesus recognizing this, remember what he said? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, right? And John 6 Jesus is referring directly back to this. The sustenance you get, the sustenance you get from me is not in the eating of breakfast and supper. It's me. I'm what sustains you. I'm what keeps you. I've been what's provided for you. And just as they ate the Passover lamb here, he's saying, it's me. I'm what sustains you in life. You eat of this and you live. If you do not eat of this, you die. That's a gospel presentation for everybody right there, right? Trust Jesus, live. Don't trust Jesus, die. That's what Jesus says in John 6. And he's pointing directly back to this. This story becomes a huge piece of the glorious story of Scripture that brings us directly, confronts us directly with a Savior who died in our place. Points us directly to Jesus and nowhere else. And that's why this coming Sunday will come from Acts chapter 4. And Peter says, there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. Jesus Christ alone. Why? Because he's the Passover lamb. He's the one that's been provided. There's not another. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to not be better scholars, but be better believers. Give us the faith we need to trust you, even in Egypt, Father, by faith, to know that you, through your son, Jesus Christ, has provided all that we need to bring us safely home again. So God, we trust in Christ and we believe in him. And Father, help us, help us every day to proclaim this until the day you come back, to be ready for the moment you call us home. All of this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you, see you Sunday.